on Textbooked. It's really hard to see any daylight between human beings and computers and computation in general now. And that's where I think our critical attention needs to be. It's not simply that you can use computers to do bad, you can use computers to do good. It seems to be that computers and digital media generally achieve such a pervasiveness in language economy and warfare and popular culture. What does that mean? What do we want to do with that information? You're listening to Untextbooked. This is the podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity. There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly am and where I come from. We can better understand the trajectory we're moving on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbook. I'm Gabe Hostin. And I'm Caroline Summers. And you're listening to Untextbooked. Without question, Technology has vastly improved our day-to-day lives. Airplanes have made it easy for us to travel thousands of miles in just a few hours. And in 2020, at the height of the pandemic, Zoom meetings helped keep us connected. We have much more access to information, time, and each other than ever before. But are all of these advancements for our good? Are we managing our tech, or is it managing us? Honestly, it's hard to tell. So many of us have found ourselves grappling with social media depression, biased algorithms, and constant distraction. Everything that happens online now has a significant impact on our lives offline as well. Yeah, the digital age is not exactly the utopia we once thought it to be. Every advance has a cause and effect. On this episode of Untextbooked, Caroline interviews Thomas S. Mullaney, author and lead editor of Your Computer's on Fire, an anthology that interrogates the ways human and computational structures overlap. The book demonstrates how and why technologies that centralize power tend to weaken democracy. Computer science can be applied to so many different fields, but history in particular sheds light on its many shortcomings. As I personally reflected on the interplay between science and history, this book raised a lot of questions for me. Questions like, what is society's ethical role as we develop new technology? What should we as users be aware of in our usage of tech? And if every technological advance is linked to a social issue from our past, what might the history of tech teach us about its future? Thank you so much for agreeing to join this podcast today. I am a student studying computer science at Columbia University. So it was really interesting to find this book and just to really like learn a lot more about the field that I'm looking to go into. And just as like I identify as a woman and kind of a male dominated field, really just learning about the history of that was Mm. very important to me. Yeah. No, uh, well, first off, thanks for having me and inviting me. It's nice to be virtually back at Columbia by virtue of talking with you. Yeah, so I guess today in this interview, I just really wanted to nail down what the history of computing is and why it's often overlooked and why it matters. All right, so the book, Your Computer is on Fire, is an anthology edited by yourself, Benjamin Peters, Mar Hicks, and Kavita Phillip. What is the intersection of like technology and then humanities and why should people care about the history of that? 
Well, um, humans, some people put it this way, that humans have been cybernetic organisms from basically our inception as a species. We're a tool-based system, tool-based species. We've been such for a very long time. So we've sort of, we've always been technological and there's a really lovely way that at least for me, I found it's very useful in a classroom setting to explain it, which is to say, okay, who here knows how to parallel park their car and people raise their hands and people that drive. And I say, you know, do you know what I mean when I say that when I park my car, when I parallel park, I can feel where the limits of the car are. I can kind of feel where the car is in space as I'm backing into that space. And people are like, yeah, yeah, I kind of know what you mean. Very quickly, the human organism incorporates the tools that we use on a habitual basis into what generally speaking for our bodies is known as proprioception, the ability for us to kind of, I can close my eyes and I can, I still kind of can feel and know where my hands are in space or where my feet are in space. And I can move around and not knock my phone or my water bottle. And we do that not just with our fingers and our toes and our legs and our limbs, but we do this in a physical sense with the tools that we use and also in a kind of more metaphorical sense with our other various sort of extensions into space through telecommunications or through social media or whatever, that we are cyborgs. Whoa, that's pretty cool. Seriously, who knew we were teen titans all along? We also need to understand the history of technology because humans have always been technological. We've always been these tool-based, technology-based, cybernetic organisms. And that's one answer to your question. There are lots of other ways of cutting up that pie, but that's one of them. It's fundamental to who we are as human organisms. Yeah. So I guess like, then how do people who are like really into tech, maybe really high up, how do you make them see the value in that? Kind of the small beginnings, how their technology interacts, like their product interacts with its consumers? Well, I think that one way, again, this, these are great questions because there's lots of dimensions to them. But if I carved out to one dimension, I would say that what I'm about to say is a stereotype, but I think it's a pretty faithful one to reality, which is that there is a, there's kind of a disease within technological circles to just assume that one is the first at something, you know, and they're surrounded all day with game-changing technologies and so forth. And so it's understandable why a corporation, why an engineer, why a team might think that what they're doing is completely new. And I think there's incredible value for those who have this sort of deeper historical perspective to say, mm, you know, slow down there, slow down there, bud, like think twice. We can talk about two, three, four, five, six analogs and predecessors of what it is that you're describing. It might not have the exact brand name of what you're describing, or it might not look exactly the same, but don't for a moment think that this is de novo, that this is coming from nothing. I mean, I've talked to leading engineers at leading companies who show me stuff and say, like, we were the first to do this. And just because I happen to know the area that they're talking about, I can literally show them something from an archival collection or from someone's work that never sort of manifested. No, you weren't. and. What's fascinating in those moments is that if someone is not just egocentric and defensive, they get curious. They're like, oh my gosh, let me, like, let me look at that. And they start to see bridges of genius across time. And they're like, oh, this is interesting how they chose to conceptualize the problem. And wow, they did this instead of that. Oh my gosh. And there is something that 
is both humbling, but also inspiring. So I think it actually, in weird ways, serves technologists to have a deeper archival sense. I have stood in front of executives and engineers at major corporations, tech corporations, like hire a permanent archival historian to be on staff whose job it is just to comb through the failed, marginalized experiments of the past. And this has value to you because there are so many things going on that in fact were in some way, shape or form, sometimes in a very robust sense, those paths were actually walked for quite a long time and then forgotten. And the other side of it, which is you know more sobering, is that when you learn that some path was pursued, you also have the opportunity to see potentially, if it got far enough, some of the spillover and negative repercussions that emerged from it. And it gives an opportunity to people in the present to say, to ask the choice, do we want that again? Do we really want to go that path and have those things potentially happen again? Or if we do, then how are we going to anticipate and try to avoid those things. But when people have these sort of ahistorical, like I am a floating orb of genius, unprecedented in time and space, and I'm just floating through space and my geniusness and, you know, move fast and break things. That's when you get this sort of childish horror, this sort of childish destructiveness that also is a deep part of tech circles where there's almost a willing disregard for asking questions about what are the knock-on effects of what it is that we're working on? What are the possible repercussions? So when something has precedent, you can show them and say, listen, this is this or that. It might not be the exact same thing, but take a look at this. The other part of it, which is from the standpoint of technologists, people that are trying to build things moving into the future, and this is true of history as a whole. I have a colleague who put it this way, that to them, history is a kind of archive of forgotten possibilities. And this is not just a technology thing. This is also about social organization and social justice movements that every activist working in the 21st century should study the archives of activist movements in the past because methods and techniques and visions and ideas, which perhaps to us now might seem impossible, unimaginable, when you see it, you're like, oh, in the 70s, this group did what? It resets a switch in your brain and says, like, whoa, something is imaginable. It like turns a switch and it just unleashes all of these new possibilities by virtue of the fact that now you have unquestionable evidence that something did happen. Often I show my students this documentary, How to Survive a Plague, about the HIV AIDS crisis. And the kind of just like, from the standpoint of the 21st century, it's just like crazy work that was being done by everyday sort of citizen scientists to teach themselves basically advanced sort of medical theory and in some ways change the basic nature by which organizations like the FDA and other regulatory bodies like undertook testing regimes for new kinds of pharmaceuticals. Shout out to one of my good friends and one of our untextbook producers, Jordan Pettiford. She interviewed David France, the author of How to Survive a Plague. Check out our episode on season two of Untextbooked. If you told me, hey, Tom, on Saturday, a group of us is going to get together to read some medical journals because we would like to place pressure on this regulatory body to change the way that drug tests are undertaken for this. I'd be like, sure, we can meet, but you're describing to me what sounds like the equivalent of trying to push really hard at the Himalayas to see if you can move it an inch. But if someone said, no, 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 this was done, then suddenly it unlocks all sorts of things. And so 
if I was sitting across the table from the more senior person in one of these industries, I might come at them from a few different ways to see which one seemed to quicken their pulse. But what I wouldn't say is some sort of generic statement that you sometimes do hear from historians that like, oh, history matters. You need to know where you come from to know where you're going. These sort of platitudes, which are not very convincing, I would say. I think people nod, but they don't really agree or they don't really care. I would come at them from a few different ways and see which one kind of registers and then maybe keep dripping water on that part of the rock rather than a different part. The documentary and the footage connected to it, it's just... It's breathtaking. It's just amazing. Yeah. So now I want to transition more to kind of about your research. Your chapter was really eye-opening to me. That was one of the ones where I was just kind of like, wow, I never really considered that. I grew up with my mom. She's a computer science teacher at my high school, and she always talked about the Dvorak keyboard. But I was like not super interested in it, but she's like, it can type so much faster but I never thought of the keyboard as kind of a technological, I don't know, like an input device that could really change culture. Mm. When you talk about languages that don't use the Latin alphabet and how they had to adapt, it, what was that that brought you to that pivot? Yeah, I think for some reason, I think probably the earliest foundations is that for some reason I am and have always been obsessed with language. I just think it's incredible that human beings have been sort of shattering and human communities have been just sort of shattering and shattering and shattering and shattering into various sort of subsets over time. And within each of these subsets, through a variety of means, both biological and cognitive, but social and cultural, have formed these completely coherent, completely effective ways of making meaning out of meaninglessness because none of the utterances, none of the sounds that you and I are making right now have any intrinsic meaning. None of the symbols on our screen right now have any intrinsic meaning. It comes out of this bizarre set of agreements whose origins are not known. And there's something about that I remember wondering what I would wish for if I had three wishes. I've always thought that one wish would be fluency in every language. Like, What would that mean for the possibility of understanding or appreciation or expression or anyway. So language has always been part of my work, even when I'm not expressly thinking about it. So my dissertation at Columbia was on a very different subject. It was about, I'm a China historian by training, but it was about something called the ethnic classification project. In a nutshell, it was a history of how the Chinese communist party decided which minority groups would be officially recognized by the government after the revolution of 49 versus which would be kind of lumped in with others. On the face value, that doesn't seem to have a lot to do with language or technology, but really what the dissertation and then book is about is classification and taxonomy. And as it turns out, the way, the primary way that minorities and minority identity at this time was ironed out by anthropologists and linguists was through language. So language became this sort of way of identifying and categorizing peoples. And so in some sense, even though the book is, I mean, the dissertation is ostensibly about ethnicity and identity, it was really about this technology of world making, of like cutting up the world into pieces in order to imagine its construction. And that the primary method of doing this, the primary way of classifying or categorizing was through language. So sort of, you know, 
there. And then after that book came out, you know, and anyone will tell you that a book is kind of done well before it comes out, meaning you're over it, you've moved on. And also probably anyone who's honest will tell you that it's very scary and doesn't feel good to be in between books, to be a person without a book if you are in a field where books are kind of the thing you produce, which history is one of them. You kind of feel like you don't have an identity, you don't have a home, you don't know who you are, you may never find it again. It's really a strange feeling. And so I spent a number of years sort of casting my net wide and chasing fireflies here and there, trying to get that feeling back that I had when I worked on my dissertation. And I had some, a lot of false starts, things that the outside world was like, wow, that sounds great. Yeah, you should do that. You know, that sounds good. Like, go that way. But in my heart of hearts, I knew, yeah, I get it. I agree that it's cool, it's smart, and no one's done it or whatever, but I can just feel that it's not the one. And then I was working on the beginnings of a different project, a sort of secret project that I started to play around with. It was basically a project that was far more intelligent than I was at the time. I found this very bizarre dictionary when I was searching in a Chinese bookstore. And it was a dictionary all about Chinese characters and Chinese words for which no one knew the meanings or pronunciation anymore. So it was like a dictionary. It was a very weird dictionary. You open it up. It was like a real thing. It wasn't some abstract art piece. You open it up. There's a Chinese character. And then next to it is pronunciation unknown, meaning unknown. Next one, character. Pronunciation unknown, meaning unknown. It was just hundreds and thousands of these characters. And the question was like, how does this happen? How do things just sort of fall out of existence? And yet they're still here with us. I'm looking at it, but it's not here. And that came to this place where I realized like, oh, you know, in order for things to disappear, there doesn't have to be a book burning. There doesn't have to be a prohibition or some sort of taboo. It's just that it's not reproduced. It's something that it's like anything that gets in the chain of reproduction just given enough time, will so outproduce and outdominate something that doesn't get into the chain of reproduction. So somehow maybe these characters just sort of didn't get into the flow. And I was like, okay, how is Chinese text reproduced? And I was like, okay, well, there's printing, there's movable type printing, there's woodblock printing, and then there's typewriting. And I was like, what is a typewriting? Huh, interesting. Like, what does a Chinese typewriter look like? I've never even thought of that before. And then fast forward 30 minutes and I was lying on the floor of my office at Stanford in front of my laptop, looking at US patent documents for different engineering schematics for experimental Chinese typewriters. And I knew, and like, boom, I knew that's it. This is it. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm so into this. And then I spent the next four years trying to figure out why I was certain about my love for this topic. That's the very weird thing about research is that you know it before you know it. And the good portion of the research process is bringing those two knowings together. Like I knew this is it. I got to work on this. But being able to tell another human being what's going on took another four years. And that opened up all of these different avenues. Of, that brought me to computing. That brought me to telegraphy and typewriting and ultimately brought me to this volume. That's really interesting. So for like listeners and obviously us who use computers every single day and kind of cannot live without them in like the way our society is structured. How do people kind of accept that computers can be both good and bad and that the virtue of like the computer is kind of how it is used and that it can do good things and people can also use them for bad things? Yeah, I think the way I would think of it is 
On the one hand, I agree with that formulation. I've used it. I've heard it. Technology is a brick. You can build a hospital. You can sneak up behind someone and kill them. But there's something else which I think is maybe even more the case, which is there are certain kinds of objects in our life that are so second nature to us, so taken for granted, so given that the behavior of that object, the habits of it, the logic of it actually shapes the boundaries of our imagination. It shapes the vocabulary we have at our disposal. It shapes our frameworks. It seeps in. There's a convergence between our models of the world and this thing itself. And it's an incredibly human thing. If someone, an archer, you know, a good archer, a good musician has to reach a place where this instrument, this tool is part of their body, like come back to the cyborg metaphor, to use it right. But a cellist puts their instrument down from time to time. But there are these other things. I think computers is a peculiar type of object or like field of activity where I think, as you're saying, it's, and I agree, we don't ever put it down. We don't ever actually put down. I'm not sure that we ever actually put down our iPhones, if you see what I'm saying. I'm not sure we ever actually close our laptops. I think there used to be a time when we put down our iPhones and shut down our laptops in the sense that it was an object in the room. But it stands to reason that we have been bathing in this for so long that even when physically we're not holding onto this device, that there are behaviors and patterns and logics and so forth that are still seeping into that, into our everyday conduct. And that's where I don't think the metaphor of the brick holds any longer, the sense that if, you know, brick, you could build a hospital, you could build an orphanage, or you could kill someone with it, because that metaphor implies a separation, a distance, a choice, a, you know, a void between you and that tool. It's hard to see daylight. It's really hard to see any daylight between human beings and computers and computation in general now. And that's where I think our critical attention needs to be. It's not simply that you can use computers to do bad, you can use computers to do good. It seems to be that computers are, have reached such a pervasiveness, and digital media generally has achieved such a pervasiveness in language economy and warfare and popular culture, da, 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 that we need to think critically about the fact that there's very little daylight or oxygen between us, between those anymore. And what does that mean? What do we want to do with that information, I guess, is the question. But what's very clear is that I know I talk to many people who feel this way, and I'm, I'm done. I, mean, I'm, I am really over the era in which so-and-so can invent or help work on the team that gives us the like button. And then 10 years later, write some sort of op-ed for wherever the New Yorker, or the Atlantic, or whatever, being like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have made the like button. Maybe it was a bad thing for the world to you know, it's like I'm done with sort of post-Trump White House confession things where their reputation is rejuvenated by way of this sort of critical self-reflection. We need more people to say and be taken seriously. Maybe, yeah, from a coding standpoint, the like button is like, I mean, a middle school programmer could do this. It's not a technological challenge, but like, can we game this out a little bit? Like, what do we think is going to happen here? And this metaphor, this ongoing metaphor, which you hear a lot, even at the faculty level, but also at the student level, like we're just here to make it. We can't predict it. And it's not our responsibility, like what users do with it. And on the one hand, I understand that argument because yes, users can always take things in unintended directions. But the idea that that exonerates one from spending sleepless nights worrying about how something might be used, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't help anybody. Yeah. So just to wrap up, is there anything else you would like to add for us to better understand 
your research and also just like editing this volume? No, I mean, my research is evolving, so I don't know that I can even help <laughs> in that, you know, provide guideposts. Not, neither do I think in my work I've reached an echelon of writing where I'm just one of the bunch, just one of the researcher bunch. So there's no companion to my work, nor, nor do I imagine there ever will be or need to be. But in terms of the volume and something that I would be really interested to see more in the world out there is I'm really proud of the editorial team and our decision and the authors to be eager and willing to go down that route that I described earlier of not hiding and not pulling any punches and just declaring. And I would love to see more and more authors who have the credentials, who have done a decade of research on something to really tell us what it is they, they, they think is so. Because us hemming and hawing, on the one hand, if we do it because something is ambiguous or uncertain or whatever, then we have to, that's the ethical requirement is that we provide counterexamples. But if we do that just all the time, and we just almost like just inject a little bit of uncertainty just for everything, that plays right into the hands of anti-intellectualism that is far too pervasive, anti-expert sentiment that is far too pervasive and getting more pervasive, especially now in the post-Trump eras. So, and just in general, I really hope more and more writers out there and scholars in particular will dive into the world of public writing, writing for serious public-facing venues. I would love to see more of these serious scholars on YouTube. I'd love to see more of these serious scholars on TikTok. I'd love to see more of these serious scholars just bringing that. Because if they don't do that, what they're saying is, as for the public sphere, like we surrender it. We surrender it to companies just trying to make money, and we surrender it to fanatics just trying to rip us all apart. And I want to see more people who have spent a decade on something venture into that place, learn the tools of the trade, go in there and say, hey, 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 everybody. Let me tell you what I think is going on. Yeah. And I think definitely as like being part of the public, wanting to read academic stuff, it's kind of, you feel so removed from like the expert knowledge and like a lot of with Gen Z, they get all their information from a TikTok and like social media has become kind of the accessible form of knowledge. Yeah. Like, I need to learn a little bit about this phenomenon called quantum scarring. And I found some pieces that are in peer-reviewed journals. And I was like, okay, I've got to work my way through this stuff. But hold on. And I went on YouTube and I found like five hour-long, like university-based recorded Zoom workshops and conferences. And I saw human beings on camera explaining. And what happens without fail is that even the most impossible to comprehend kind of quantum physics. If there's a human being on a camera, humans are storytellers. We're connectors. We're born into families. They use metaphors and humor and like analogies. And suddenly just by watching 10 minutes of a YouTube video, it's not that I understand quantum scarring. It's that I've got like just a few finger holds and toe holds on this otherwise sheer cliff of incomprehensibility. That allows me then to go back into that really difficult to understand peer-reviewed article and say, okay, still don't get it, but at least I can see something that I recognize. And so my view is, wow, I wish that one of the individuals in one of those two-hour videos that has like 40 views over the course of two years, I wish one of them would pair up with a producer and like make a video that's going to be watched by 2 million people about what quantum scarring is. Yes, they'll have to cut corners. Yes, they'll have to like leave certain things out. But you need to meet people where they are and when they are 
but at the same time, never imagine that publics and audiences are in some way incapable of understanding complexity. I think the starting point that we have to believe is that every human being, every person is capable of understanding profound complexity, profound complexity, the most complex things that have ever been studied. I think the starting point is anyone with the right initiation, the right pathway through it can arrive at that. And then the question is, how? Well, thank you so much again for your time and your insight and kind of like your heart in the subject matter to join me on this podcast today. Thank you for having me. After listening to that conversation, I'm wondering, what are you walking away with? There were so many interesting nuggets to take away from this conversation, but what stuck with me most is that history plays an important role in the advancement and the ethical approach to technology. As a woman in tech, I'll be paying more attention to technology's social impact. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, Caroline. Our producer, Caroline Summers, is a sophomore at Columbia University. Thomas S. Mullaney is a professor of history as well as professor of East Asian languages and cultures at Stanford University. He's also the Clues Chair in Technology and Society at the Library of Congress and a Guggenheim Fellow. You can follow him on Twitter at T.S. Mullaney. That's T-S-M-U-L-L-A-N-E-Y. We've included a link to his work in our show notes. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you decide to listen. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Next week, we're taking a look at how government surveillance is a threat to our democracy. I think in countries like China, citizens are a bit more suspicious to begin with. They know they live in an authoritarian society. They know there's one party rule. They know the government is not always interested in their freedom, to put it mildly. They are actually more aware of the dangers. The problem in the United States is that we have the illusion that government is well-intended. If you like the show, tell your friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. Our website is untextbook.org, and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with Pod People, Ann Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, and Michael Aquino. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer, and Cece Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>